Turn in your Bibles, in the meantime, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. My name is Chris. I'm uh, the executive pastor here. I get to preach from time to time, and I had the privilege of doing that this morning. Luke chapter 12 will be in verses 49 through 59. We'll read that. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back of the room. You can take one of those and use it this morning. If you don't own a Bible, then you're um, free to take that with you as a gift from us. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Hear the very word of the Lord this morning. I came to cast fire on the, on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, divided father against son and Son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said this to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you would once say, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. (sighs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) It's a tough text. Remember from last week, we, uh, we learned that Jesus, from him, that we should live in a perpetual state of readiness. Readiness for his return, and that, that does fit with our season, right? For Advent seasons, we look to Christ's first coming, we look ahead in anticipation for his second coming, and he used this illustration of being prepared, and this illustration of butlers and footmen and maids, think Downton Abbey. While the Lord of the manor leaves on a journey, he leaves those that are over his household as managers to continue their duties, to care for the property, for the estate, tend the gardens, right? To polish the silverware, sweep the house, look after the animals, and even care for the other attendants, the other servants that are there, making sure that they're all paid, they're all well fed in his absence. And while away, he entrusts them all these important duties to them to be faithful, vigilant caretakers of his household when his absence. But most importantly, he instructs them, Jesus is instructing them, to remain watchful, to be ready for his return. Stay dressed for action, he says. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast. So that when he comes, knocks on the door, you're ready to allow him in back entry way into the house. And just so we don't miss the point, Jesus is not simply just giving us advice on how to be good employers, good employees, that, that we should work with integrity, although those things are true, that would be to miss his central message from last week. The, the key understanding of this parable was in verse 40. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. In the same way that a, a thief strikes in the night at the most opportune time when the victim is the most vulnerable and unsuspecting, in that manner, in that same kind of way, Jesus is going to return. And his second advent, his second coming, will not look like his first coming. 
He'll not come quietly and humbly like this, this, this last time as Daniel prophesied. He will, he will come in, in heavenly regalia on the clouds to bring judgment as the son of man riding on the clouds. And those servants who had squandered their time, didn't do what they were told to do, mismanaged while he was gone will be judged for that by the righteous judge. But those who remain vigilant, they will be rewarded. As Pastor Lou said last week, quote, the kingdom of God seekers set their hearts and passion in the redeeming, saving, cleansing, empowering, love-producing reign of God in their lives. Thy kingdom come in my life over the whole earth until he reigns and consummates the fullness of his kingdom where he will reign with righteousness and justice and sin will be eradicated and joy will be eternal, end quote. We just talked about joy, just heard about joy that we have as believers the question is, are, are, we, are we living in anticipation? Are we, are we watching and waiting? Do we take seriously God's charge while he's away? When you consider the holiness of God, the most shocking thing really is not so much that he will come to judge as the holy one, that he must defeat sin. He will punish all those who oppose his lordship and his kingship and his kingdom's coming Actually, the most astonishing thing is that there's going to be any survivors at all, right? And they will experience instead the tender love and care of God himself. In verse 37, we saw the master returning only to put on the servant's robe and to humbly serve those that had done what he told them to do while he was gone. In all his holy fervor to dispense justice to unrepentant sinners, Cutting them to pieces, he's just as passionate about blessing his redeemed people. On that final day, our God will fiercely vindicate his holy name, eradicate sin and all of his enemies, and then he will tenderly turn to his beloved people, his precious purified bride, and he will serve her a feast. This passage is a continuation of that, it's a continuation of Chapter 12 in its entirety, throughout Jesus has used a lot of scathing language. He's, and that's true of this text this morning, in verse 49 through 53, he's, he's calling down fire from heaven. He's, he's talking about the water of baptism. He's, he's wrecking everyone's dreams about, about world peace. He's bearing his heart, and it sounds like he's even driving a wedge between family members. We don't have the luxury of defining Jesus on his own. Uh, on our own terms or determining the kind of Jesus that we want. We, we don't get to choose between different flavors and assemble from a list of kind of like assorted characteristics of, of, uh, of, of God, like as though we're putting together a Build-A-Bear made up of all the features and accessories that we find most charming. We either accept him as he is or we don't accept him at all. He's at the same time the Lion of Judah and the sacrificial lamb without blemish. He's simultaneously God and human in the flesh. And in this way, he's the most polarizing person in all of human history. Even by his own account, he'll tell us that this morning. And Jesus shifts now the focus of his theme from last week, the future judgment, to the nature of his present ministry while he was here on earth. And he affirms this reality. In verses 49 through 53, he declares that there'll be no peace and he f- forces us to decide to, to, uh, what to do about him, what we will make of him. Then we'll see in verses 54 to 56, he, he indicts unbelievers with a charge of being 
non-discerning, of, of having no discernment for failing to recognize the arrival of the kingdom of God as it was right in front of their faces. All the evidence have pointed that he was the Messiah, but they refused to believe their Bibles. And finally, in verses 57 to 59, he exposes their lack of remorse and warns them, settle your debt, settle your debt with God, your sin debt, before he returns to collect payment. In other words, repent while there's still time to repent. First thing he says is, in verse 49 and 50, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have, been, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. I was tempted to begin just by, de, de, by defining what this fire is, what this baptism is, and, and I will do that, but I think it's most important to lead with what's on Jesus' heart here first. He's letting us into his motivations, his deepest desires. Sometimes he's blunt about it in his teaching, but in passages like this one, he's, he's actually more poetic, the way that he expresses the spiritual truth. More like a poet with this rich rich imagery of hellfire and of waters of baptism he even has a lyrical structure that's in place wooded that it were already kindled how great is my distress until it's accomplished jesus is revealing his heartbeat to us his fervent desire the one thing that it could never for an instant abandon while he was here which is the mission of god the very reason that he came and that's what we're celebrating this time of year. He didn't come to perform a diagnostic walking the earth and looking around and see what it's, what's, what's up or to get a close eye view or, or to even walk in our shoes for 33 years. Jesus left heaven for a predetermined plan that was established by God, by the sovereign God, by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world was even created, which was to come to rescue people from all tribes and languages and nations from their hopeless, sin-fueled appetite for self-destruction and annihilation. And here we see he didn't come begrudgingly. His distress that he's mentioning here, it's not the distress of the mission itself, although he would trek from, from manger all the way to the cross, and it would lead him through poverty and stress abandonment and humiliation, mocking and scourging, even the burden of, of bearing the sin of the entire world on his shoulders to be burned up by God's wrath. He's describing, though, here, his intense, deep desire to accomplish what he began with his coming, with his birth. He would not rest until he had completed his mission Though it brought him through the fires of God's judgment and even to his own death, Jesus remained steadfast, focused, resolved, undeterred. In chapter 9, we, we read that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. The cross, at this point, as his teaching, was already fixed firmly in his sights. And it would stay that way until his hour was accomplished, when his hour had come. Nothing would have frightened him away. Nothing would have dissuaded him or prevented him from getting to the cross, from hanging on the cross because of what it would achieve. It would bring salvation to his people. 
it would bring great glory to his father. Even in the hours leading up to his death, we read that Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. What do I say now? Father, save me from this hour, but it's from this purpose that I have come into the world. Father, glorify your name. And when I am lifted up on the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus was all in. That's what he's saying here. He's all in on this mission. Some call it the divine must, but it's not a sense of this cold, hard commitment to a divine duty. Jesus willingly came to earth. It was his desire, it was his delight to fulfill the sovereign plan of God. It was his joy to do the Father's will. He's looking forward to the cross because he knows that it's going to procure all the benefits of salvation to his people. And those benefits are, are like in this, during this time that he's speaking are, are like an unwrapped, undelivered Christmas gift that's just waiting for him to go to the cross when it can finally be delivered, when he can finally say and announce it's finished in victory. In his commentary, Kent Hughes lists It's a great list of all the things that Jesus was longing for, which motivated him to go to the cross. He lists, all who believe in him would be regenerated. They would be born again by the Spirit. They would be indwelt by that Holy Spirit. They would no longer be alone. They would no longer be orphans. They would be sealed by the Spirit as a down payment, ensuring their eternal security, their eternal inheritance. They would enjoy eternal life now, they would be sanctified, it's set apart, made holy. Their lives would be ignited for mission to make disciples. That judgment would fall, it would separate God's people from those who are, will be judged for destruction, that he would finally bring peace and equity to the earth. And all of that, and much more, would be bought through his blood, and that all pleased the Father. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, isn't it wonderful to know that he didn't for once step off course, but he remained on mission while he was here? And how would Jesus fulfill that mission? Well, I've already kind of alluded to it, but Jesus used the term here, baptism. Baptism meaning this idea of being immersed in water, submerged in water. He's not referring to his earlier baptism. He'd been baptized at the beginning of his ministry by John the Baptist, He's not referring to that. He's not talking about believer's baptism that we practice now, although that when we do that, we're being united with Christ. We're showing our, our union with Christ and what he's done for us in our lives. But he's used this metaphor of baptism to describe the, the waves, these, these torrents of God's judgment for the sins that he would adore, endure while he was on Calvary's hill. When we look at the cross, like, like the one behind me, like the ones we sometimes have around our necks or we have tattooed on our bodies, we see this, this compressed telling of the gospel. But that image of the cross should also remind us of, of just the bloody mess, the, the suffering, the, the costly sacrifice that Jesus endured that was necessary to save us from our sins. There's no salvation without the cross. And on it, Jesus suffered violence from, from sinful humans and God's righteous judgment, his anger towards sin, not his sin. He was this only sinless one. He perfectly obeyed God's laws, but, but the sin that he wore was our sin. It was yours, it was mine, it was all of humanity's God-hating rebellion. 
And Jesus' suffering death was substitutionary, meaning he, he, we deserved his wrath. We deserved to suffer the, the penalty for our sins against God. But astonishingly, Jesus took our place on the cross. This is why Jesus rebuked Peter when, he, when, he, when Peter tried to challenge Jesus' claim that he would suffer and die. And that's why he rejected Satan's temptation to avoid the cross to inherit the, 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 the nations. His crucifixion, his crucifixion would be that very thing that would emancipate sinners from their chains. It would grant them peace to those who trust him. And it demonstrates the glory of God the Father all commingled together on the cross. But not everybody finds Jesus' mission, his message, captivating or, or find him worthy of our worship. Some despise and some reject him. In fact, if it were not for the cross, we would all remain utterly deprived and relentless in our hatred toward God. But there's a purifying aspect to God's mission, to Christ's mission. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are believing, it's the power of God. Jesus' cross, his baptism, is a decisive act. It's, it's a divisive act. It splits people into two camps. This, this is what the fiery rain from heaven it, it, that he's mentioning in verse 49 is referring to. When we read about fire in scripture, it can mean different things. It could, it could obviously mean literal fire. Uh, like when you think about Moses, when he was approaching that, that burning bush in the wilderness where that was inconsumable, that fire. That's where he heard the, the call of God. It can also refer to the Holy Spirit's work. Like, it, like in uh, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon his people, hovering over them with, with, with fl- flaming tongues as, as they began to pronounce the gospel, explain the gospel in all different languages so all people could hear it. But it can also be a metaphor for God's judgment, his, his pouring out of his judgment. And as we learned last week, God's final judgment is a future event, and that's what Jesus warning the crowds about, but this time, he's also using this metaphor to describe the fire, to describe the, this, this, this polarizing force of his ministry. Jesus is essentially the great divider. He forces us to choose between him, whether we will choose him, seek his kingdom, or we will continue on our path toward destruction. Jesus clarifies this in verse 51. Do you think that I have come to bring peace? No. I have not come to bring peace, but, but rather division. Wait a second. Didn't we just read like last week in our Advent meditation that Jesus was, came to bring peace to the earth? And that's what the, the angels announced on the first Christmas, right? That, that glory to God in the highest and on earth peace toward all those on whom he's well pleased, right? And one of Jesus' titles in Isaiah prophesied about him 700 years before he was born was that he would be the prince of peace. So is this a contradiction? Not at all. Jesus Jesus is the glorious peacemaker, and praise God that he is. He purchased our peace with God, with his coming, and with his atoning work. And that's not a fact to be taken lightly when we realize, right, the, the, the depths of our guilt, the heinousness of our sin against the ruler of the universe. That demands an eternal punishment. 
And to be freed from that, to have a relationship with God, loved by him, accepted by him, that's a reason to be filled with joy. Amen? But even from his birth, what Jesus is, is saying here is that he's posing a challenge to the world, to its, its systems. At his birth, a, a crazed, paranoid, bloodthirsty king named Herod tried to murder him, tried, murdered many babies hoping to rid the world of its king, of its, of its savior. Jesus coming inaugurated, inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth, and it, by doing that, it challenged the status quo. He's a direct competitor to the world systems, its values, what it holds valuable, its gods. And Jesus claiming here that division is not even just a consequence of his coming. It's not even an intended effect of his ministry. With his coming, Jesus introduced division on the earth. He's the great divider who brings the refining fire of judgment, dividing the world's population into two categories, those who will align with him and those who will war against him. Those who accept the peace of his cross and those who will receive punishment for their unrepentant sins. And ironically, the very thing that the world needs and longs for, peace, is like a chasing after the wind, right? Without Christ, peace is perpetually elusive. The world, left to itself, will never plan enough, never strategize enough, or invent enough, or invest enough, or engineer enough, or code enough, or be diplomatic enough to achieve true, lasting peace. The peace that the world chases after without Christ is a fantasy. It's a unicorn. doesn't exist. That's because sin still exists in the world, and as long as it does, the struggles between the two kingdoms are going to continue. The war will, however, it will one day finally end when Jesus returns to establish peace. He'll finally defeat his enemies. He'll, he'll finally eradicate sin and death. He'll restore the paradise. He'll recreate, he'll restore the universe, this image, as a glorious temple where his people from all areas of the world will be reunited together under his righteous reign and will dwell together with him in unity and, and, and will perfectly, he will perfectly reign and his, and his unending peace of shalom will rule. And that's just not just a pipe dream. For God's people, that's a certainty. It's a hope, it's our longing. And it, it grows with intensity, right? At the, the longer that we, we realize and grow in our understanding of who Christ is, we, we see his beauty, the, the more we understand his grace, his mercy, his love, the peace that we have in Christ. <clears throat> but that doesn't remove the strife that we endure while we wait. In fact, the longer we remain in this broken world, the more we'll not be surprised by, by Jesus' words in verses 52 to 53. If we're listening closely to these verses, Jesus is telling us that we should actually ex expect rejection. We should not be surprised that our faith in Christ will garner ridicule and, and rejection. It's guaranteed. It's, it's be guaranteed the side of eternity, and we should be ready for it. 
He warned disciples that, we, that this would happen when he preached the gospel, right? When he sent them out to go out and preach the message of the kingdom of God as they were going from town to town. He said, some are going to reject you. When that happens, shake the dirt off of your Birkenstocks as a testimony, right, to their rejection. And then move on to the next town and keep telling them about the good news of the kingdom and being here. And let's be honest, it's, it's one thing to be misunderstood to be rejected by people that we know, those who we don't know, those who are acquaintances, maybe even coworkers or classmates. But Jesus is going further. He's he's saying here, he's stating that it's gonna happen even among families and family members. And it can mean that Thanksgivings, it can mean that Christmases are more than just a little awkward. They can be painfully lonely. And we're all going to experience this. We're gonna face this in different degrees different contexts, but it will come to all of us at some point, and how can we be prepared? What, what can we do to prepare ourselves or to navigate it while in the midst of, of the pain of that reality? Well, first, we can pray about it. We can pray through our tears. We can pray with the pain to God who understands rejection. He was rejected by all of humanity, and, and he was violently crucified. He, he could sympathize with us with you and we can pray for those who are going through the pain of broken relationships as well if we're not going through it pray for others or as we're going through it, pray for those that we know who are also going undergoing that one of my favorite passages in in all of Paul's letters is 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 as he describes not only his affliction his need for comfort but he asked for prayer from from his people know, that he's writing to praying and asking them knowing that Prayer is a means that God uses to grant us the blessing of comfort in our distress. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And, but it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again on him. We have set our hope and he, that he will deliver us again. But you also, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Pray. Pray for those who ridicule you for your faith as well. Realizing that ultimately they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting the message of the gospel. They're rejecting Christ a pastor friend of mine just this week shared testimony that he came to faith after his mother prayed for years for him and fasted for his conversion and God answered that prayer. Maybe there's some of you here that have a similar story. Pray. Second, cling to the gospel. Fix your eyes on the majesty of Christ and what he endured, what he endured to rescue you from sin and eternal union with him. You belong to him. If you're his, you belong to him forever, and he will never abandon you. Third, be, be comforted by the community of faith, the church, your eternal family. Let, um, let us, let, let all of us together care for, embrace each other, and care for one another. Fourth, recognize and embrace the tension that comes with living godly lives in a sin-filled world. And that means, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. 
That's in the context of Paul's instruction, by the way, that to bless those who persecute you. And he's echoing, obviously, Jesus' command to love our enemies. Try, try, we try hard to remain in, in relationship with those who are unbelievers that are in our family. Now, it's not always possible, I understand that. We, that's not, it's not always up to us, but we should try to seek and maintain some semblance of relationship so that we can be, continue to be a gospel influence so they will turn and find Jesus beautiful. And that dovetails with number five, stay on mission, right? We frequently talk here and define living on mission as demonstrating and declaring the gospel. That means that we display the gospel with our actions. We show generosity as we've been shown generosity by Christ. We, we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. We, we meet each other's needs as Christ has meet, met our ultimate need. It also means that we, we vocalize that message of the gospel as well. That we vocalize a message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel is that call to forsake our idols, to repent of sins, and to trust Jesus. And gospelizing is not just this accessory, this ancillary aspect to our lives, secondary purpose or tertiary. It's the primary focus of our lives, the purpose of our lives. Those who belong to Christ have been saved from sin and saved to Christ, to a mission. God's mission, which is to seek and save the lost. And we have that honor as to continue to perpetuate that mission, to be ambassadors to a hostile world, to tell others about Christ who loves them, gave his life for them, and still saving people. Amen? Amen. Brings us to our next point. Jesus condemns their lack of discernment Jesus bashes them for their unwillingness to respond in faith to the amazing reality that the kingdom of God has come. It's there amongst them, amidst them. The king is right in front of their faces. The kingdom of God has been a major central theme of our study as we've gone through this book of of Luke, and that's because it's been a major theme for Jesus, right? For his ministry. Since, Since the time he turned 30 years old, he's been declaring with power, with authority, and with signs and wonders that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. All the way back in chapter 4, we read that Jesus was teaching his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And he's, he opens up the scriptures, or actually it's opened up for him, the designated reading for that Sabbath, for that day's gathering. And from Isaiah, he read the prediction about himself. And he tells them in, not, in no uncertain terms that he's the one that's come and that he is fulfilling the scripture right in front of them at that very moment. He was the one that was sent by God to proclaim good news to the poor. He came from heaven to proclaim the liberty to the captives by recovering sight to the blind, by setting at liberty those who were oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor had arrived. The time had come. One season had had, 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 had uh, uh, eclipsed and now a new season had dawned and the Jewish people at this in their, they were people of dates and times and schedules and seasons they, they were well scheduled people they relied on God's law to tell them when to rest when to celebrate when, when to fast when to celebrate holy days but they were also agrarians right so much of their livelihood depended on making sure 
they knew how to read the signs of the seasons to make sure that, that they had plentiful crops from year to year to year and, and they had become skilled in, in being able to read weather patterns. But when it came to determining the year of the Lord's favor, they proved to be incompetent. Worse, actually, Jesus is saying that they're, being, they're complicit in their ignorance. He calls them hypocrites. This wasn't just an oversight on their part. It was a refusal to, a refusal to acknowledge their king. They had come to, such, to be such skilled meteorologists, but when it came to the things of God, they lacked discernment. They failed to discern from God's word that Jesus is the one that they had been waiting for. The God of all the seasons, it was clear from his authoritative words, from the power to heal sicknesses and, and, and to even raise people from the dead and, and to cast demons out by the finger of God. He was not just a miracle worker. He brought salvation with him. And the religious leaders even studied God's word. They, they knew it well. They, they memorized large portions of scripture. They also built, unfortunately, layer after layer after layer of, of tradition that further clouded their discernment and it blinded them from being able to recognize and receive Jesus for who he was, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. But what does this mean for us? Jesus is exhorting them, he's exhorting us today as well to evaluate our hearts. Who do you believe Jesus to be? And the way that we answer has eternal ramifications. Last week, Pastor Lou pointed out that we're not consumed also by this calculating, calculating somehow that the second coming of Christ as though we can predict it somehow. That would be missing the point of his message and that would be missing the point of this morning's text as well. Interpreting the times does not mean that we don't look around trying to figure out what's going on around us in a way to predict when Jesus will return. But what it does mean is that we do look around us, we use our reason, we look at the state of the world, we look at the culture we live in, we look at the spirits of the age, and then we meet it with the gospel, right? We meet it with the truths of scripture, and that means also parents teaching those truths to our children, showing them in scripture, that it's, that it's not just a collection of propositions or rules or even st- stories that have some connection, maybe not, but they do point instead to the God in whom we ought to worship and serve. And the question is, are, are we listening to Jesus' voice that's captured in the pages of Scripture? If the clouds and wind, winds and can be a predictor of the weather, if the rain's coming, the Scripture is God's word revealed to us. It's an instrument he has given us to show us that the God's kingdom has arrived in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Are we studying scripture? Are we looking at God's word? Passages like this could be difficult to understand. I, I get it. It was t- hard for me this week. It can be hard not only to understand, but it can also be hard for us in our hearts to acknowledge, to repent, to apply the truths to our hearts so are we open, our hearts open to receiving God's word or are we relying on the Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding and to also soften our hearts so that we can respond properly to God's 
call to Christ's call to follow him, to grow in our love for him, to grow in our love and devotion and worship. I absolutely love Psalm 19. It's one of my favorites. I wish we had time to read it. I don't have time this morning, but I encourage you after the service sometime later today, read chapter 19 of Psalms. The sky he talks about is, is beautiful. He, he declares, David here, that the beauty of God's glory that is revealed in the world around us. The sky is a beautiful sight to behold, but like Jesus mentioned, it's a marvelous way that God uses to announce the change in the weather, change in the seasons. It's, it's more than just this, a stunning, consistent measure of time. It's, it's, it's greater than any crafted or calibrated timepiece because it is God's time that's being held and, and shown and revealed. He's, he's describing the excellencies of his creation, but then David goes on to, dis, to, to con- contrast that, and how, beauty, how much beautiful it is, and then says, but look at the glories also of God's word in scripture. It revives the soul, it makes one wise, it enlightens our eyes to understanding, it rejoices our hearts, it's, it's sweeter than honey, it's more desirable and costly than gold. Do we see the Bible that way? We read God's word. I shall also add the Holy Spirit who dwells God's people, gives us all gifts differently, and we're not independent from one another, right? We're actually an interdependent body. And we thrive best when we're using our gifts and talents and skills with others, and that includes helping each other understand what scripture teaches and helping us to live faithfully. We have a community that we can draw from, we can draw insight and wisdom from in our discipleship journey. Yes, we, we have pastors, we have teachers, even commentaries who, commentators who ex- exposit God's word that, that draw the meaning, show us the meaning of, of God's word with insight that they've been given by God, but it also includes, this community includes all those who are sitting around us, whose Bibles are also open, who are also students of scripture that we can hear from. Let me point it out just Shameless plug here. If you're not in a, a community group, then you're missing out on that. You're missing out on what the Spirit wants to teach you through the, the, somebody else's words and through their experiences and through their wisdom. And, and let, let me also say that they're missing out because you're not there, because you're not in a relationship with them either. We need each other to understand God's word to help us be faithful in applying it, its truth to our lives and to remain on mission Third point, finally Jesus warns them of their lack of remorse. Their spiritual blindness, had, their lack of, of judgment had led them to take on this, this insurmountable debt. He's not advising them on how to maintain interpersonal relationships or giving them some kind of legal advice. It, it kind of reminds me of a text we, we read earlier, a passage when, when in the middle of Jesus' sermon as he's teaching these crowds someone interrupts him and asks him publicly hey jesus tell my brother to split the family inheritance with me i can almost hear the laughter of the crowd when jesus says in a tongue-in-cheek way man who made me a judge an arbitrator over you but there's a more there's a more pressing spiritual arbitration that's needed that jesus came to perform He came to be the mediator between God and humanity. And Jesus is revealing to the crowds the depth of their guilt. The person in this illustration that he's giving 
is guilty. There's no other way of reading around. It's not like, oh, maybe he's, he's innocent. and No, he's guilty. He deserves to be held accountable for the debt that he's uh, accumulated, that he's incurred. But the debt that Jesus is referring to is more serious than a monetary debt. They are morally bankrupt. And the court proceedings before a holy God are about to commence. Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make every effort, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you before the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you into prison. I tell you, you will not ever get out. You will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. In earthly matters, it makes, it makes sense to settle out of court, right? It makes, especially in that day. In that day, it was likely that those who could not repay their debts would be thrown into debtor's prison. And they would remain in prison until it was paid off. And, and it, that could be indefinitely. And it was not uncommon for them to be beaten while they were in prison as an incentive for their family to get the money together to pay the, the debt to get them out of prison. So it was in obviously the, the guilty person's, the guilty party's best interest to settle before they got to court. Settle with your accuser. It's not even a guarantee, right, that the accuser will accept a reduced debt to absorb the cost, to forgive the debt in any way that's owed to him. And if he declines to settle, then the only recourse is prison. As Jesus says, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Whether they see it or not, their sin debt had left them in a very precarious situation. He's warning the crowds to settle their debt while they still have the time. A day is coming when they will stand before a holy one, the holy one, and be judged for their rebellion. And they will have to stand before the great judge and and give an account for their refusal to acknowledge and bow before King Jesus I said they, they, they a lot of times just now, but we are 2,000 years removed, but it's just as clear, just as poignant for us today. It's relevant. Our sin has left us with a debt that we can't repay. And no amount of good deeds, no, no pay it forwards, no cleverness, nor even the claim of ignorance is going to wipe the slate clean. There's nothing that we can do do to avoid hell. But what we need is an we need a competent mediator, an arbitrator, someone who who can argue our case or satisfy our, our accuser. The accuser in this parable is not Satan. The accuser here is actually God Himself. He has every right and every authority as a sovereign and holy God of the universe to punish sin to punish us for our sin but the good news is that he is he has graciously supplied a mediator the accuser the accuser has taken it upon himself to grant us pardon through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son jesus christ and god doesn't just simply wave away our sin our debt 
That would make him unjust. That would, that would no longer make him holy. That would taint his holiness. Instead, he offers to pay it. That should just blow your mind. It should blow our minds. The victim of our hate, God himself, who stands in the position to imprison us in hell for eternity, offers pardon to us through the sinless life, the substitutionary sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. God supplied the pardon, our forgiveness, by sending his most precious asset, his most precious possession, his son, on the death-defying mission Actually, it's not even a death-defying mission. It's a a death-defeating mission. Jesus was obedient. He marched directly into death. He experienced the hell that we deserved, and he rose from the grave so that we could avoid hell, and we could gain him. We could gain heaven. Jesus settled our case by shedding his blood. He substituted, substituted himself in our place to justify us rather than to justly judge us for our crimes against God. And in that work, that atoning work, this, this, this great exchange took place, as Luther called it, the great exchange where, where our sin was placed upon him to burn and his righteousness was granted to our accounts. He took his sin upon, our sin upon himself, willingly suffered the penalty for our sins on the cross and his righteousness is then imputed to us it's been given granted to us so now that our position before God has has changed entirely so that we're no longer ostracized we are now accepted by God we are forever belonging to him sin demanded our death but Jesus frees us from our debt even death itself so that we can experience life eternal life with him. Are you willing to settle your case? Do you understand the the hopelessness of your life without Christ? There's grace in this warning. Jesus is not just cold. He's warm. He's tender. And he's inviting us to join him. He's saying true remorse, true repentance means settling with God now while there's still time. So I encourage you, if you haven't, avail yourself of the pardon of of sin. Place your faith in Christ, the only righteous one. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us this morning, a hard word, sometimes in places hard to understand, hard to accept, We recognize that you are the most polarizing figure in human history and you've divided us into those who will accept you and those who reject you. Lord, I just pray that you would warm our hearts toward you, that we know that it's a spiritual work that must be done. Nothing that we can do on our own, but we pray fervently that our hearts would be opened, that we would see you most glorious and bow our knee to you, but those who we know that we love who are in a very precarious situation that we were once in, we pray that you would open their hearts, draw them to yourself, and that you, Spirit, would bring them life, breathe life into their hearts, and that they would awaken and see the beauty of Christ, and they would love you, and they would 
uh, devote their lives to worshiping you. And Lord, those of us who are, uh, are, are in struggles now recently, um, maybe even this time of season is that trigger. I pray, Lord, that we would not, re- not forget the mission you came to, that you did not avail yourself of, of, of leaving the course, but you remained on course, and you went all the way from manger to the cross, to the resurrection, to ascension, so that we could be yours. And let, let that joy just resonate within our hearts this, uh, this morning and throughout this entire season. We love you, and as we continue to worship you, we pray that our response would be one of repentance, one of faith, and one in which we um, join the mission to make disciples. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.